I'm going to continue today with my series on little-known heroes of faith by our second hero. And today's hero is a man for whom we have no name. But the scripture in which this man plays a vital role is just as important regarding the world in which we live in today and how we Christians are to participate in that world today as it was almost 2,000 years ago. Our second scriptural reading brings together two men that on the surface and at first appearance could not have been further different from one another. It begins with one of the two men, Jesus of Nazareth, who has just finished giving his sermon on the plain, which is Luke's version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, he stated the ethical standards that he and we are to live by, including love your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, blessing those that curse you, praying for those that mistreat you, turning the other cheek, giving to everyone who begs from you, being merciful as God is merciful, and do to others as you would have them do to you. An easy set of ethical rules to follow. One of the best descriptions of Jesus is by theologian Marcus Borg, you've heard me say this before, who describes Jesus as the decisive revelation of what life full of God looks like, radically centered in God and filled with the Spirit. He is the decisive disclosure of what can be seen of God in human life. As the word and wisdom of God became flesh, his life incarnates the character of God, indeed, the passion of God. In him, we see God's passion. God is the heart of reality, and Jesus is the heart of God. It is just after giving his sermon that Jesus becomes involved with the second person in this important scripture, the centurion. He can be described very differently than Jesus. We don't know his name, but we know he was a part of the most efficient killing machine that had existed up until that time. All members of the Roman army were highly trained and skilled killers. The centurion was the commander of 80 to 100 men who were called a century, hence the name centurion. His word was absolute law to his men and those governed by them. Centurions did not get their position by being nice guys. They rose up through the ranks and became known for their ability to fight and to kill. They also were excellent leaders of men. They were the ones to enforce the very strict discipline employed by the Roman army. They're not real warm and fuzzy guys, let's just face it. They also enjoyed a very high social status and they received a pretty good salary. Centurions were also part of the brutal Roman occupation force of Palestine at the time of Jesus. According to religious historian Richard Horsley, the Roman occupiers of Palestine terrorized people into submission through ruthless devastation of the land and towns. 
slaughter and enslavement of the people, and crucifixion of people along the roadways or public places so as to serve as a deterrent to any Roman, anti-Roman activity. So now we have a picture of the two key figures in our New Testament scripture for today. They could not have been more different from one another as you now see, at least at first glance. One based his life on love, forgiveness, justice, social change, and strength through God. The center of the other's life was violence, killing, and the strength through brute force. And yet, there was one thing they had in common. And it was that one thing that allowed both of them to accomplish a memorable event. Our story opens as Jesus enters the town of Capernaum. It was in this town that the centurion lived. He had a slave who he valued highly and was close to death due to an illness. Now right away, we can see that this centurion may have differed from the others of his same rank and power. That is because slaves at the time of Jesus were considered to be a human tool to be used for a specific job And when the job was over or the tool wore out, they were thrown aside. The owner of a slave could do anything to their slave, including killing him or her with impunity. Here we see the first unique quality of this centurion. He genuinely cared for his slave. Our scripture continues and uses the word that the centurion had, quote, heard of Jesus. We do not know exactly what that means. But at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the centurion must have known that Jesus had the ability to heal people from their illnesses. He would also know that Jesus repeatedly said that his power to give healing did not come from him, but came from God. Therefore, we can assume that Jesus knew and understood the situations in which he did healing, and he always gave the credit for that healing to God. The centurion must have known that, and therefore the centurion had faith in God through Jesus. Now, according to the Gospel of Luke, the centurion did not personally come to ask Jesus for his help. Instead, he sent some Jewish elders to help him. This is another significant point to demonstrate that this was no ordinary Roman centurion. First, he asked Jewish elders to go to Jesus. Now, the Jews were the ones that were being brutally oppressed by the Romans. Why on earth would he ask people oppressed by his army to help him in any way? But even more amazing is the fact that the Jews complied with his request. They could have just said, no, we're not going to do it. But given the power of the centurion habit over their very lives, eh, that wouldn't have been a very bright thing to do. Or they could have gone to Jesus and conveyed the request and then in secret begged him, please don't do it. Once again, we see that the centurion was very different than the Roman warriors that surrounded him. But as we read on, we see that this centurion was a true believer in God. 
Because the elders tell Jesus that he is worthy of having him heal his slave. For he loves our people. And it is he who built a synagogue for us. Well, there you have it. This centurion clearly had a faith in God, or else he would not have built a house of worship to that God. Especially because synagogues could frequently become used to plan and begin rebellions against the Roman army. In response, Jesus went with the leaders to the home of the centurion. And as he was going there, some friends of the centurion came to him and quoted the centurion saying, I am not worthy of having you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Now, practically speaking, the centurion may have been doing Jesus a favor because a Jew who entered the home of a Gentile, which the Roman was, became spiritually unclean and then had to go through the whole process of purification to become clean once more. However, the friends of the centurion continued and said, this is very important, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. Only speak the word. If there was any doubt about the faith of the centurion, this language would eliminate it. By saying all that Jesus had to do was utter one word, and his slave would be cured. The deep faith of the centurion that he had in God is perfectly evident now. Remember, Jesus wasn't anywhere near the afflicted slave. He couldn't touch him. He couldn't speak to him. He couldn't see him. And yet the centurion was absolutely convinced that Jesus could heal his slave. Now that reflects a deep and abiding faith in God. And then our story continues and something truly remarkable happens. Jesus became amazed with the centurion. Now, if you stop to think about it, something that amazed Jesus must have been incredible. The New Testament only records two times that Jesus was amazed. The first was in a negative sense at Mark 6, 6, where he was amazed by the lack of faith of the people that lived in his hometown of Nazareth. The centurion, Jesus so In the centurion, Jesus was so positively amazed at his faith that he stated he had not seen anyone in all of Israel with such faith. He hadn't seen anybody that had the faith of the centurion. He then, without being anywhere near the slave and without a public prayer, without a physical gesture, and without saying any any word, healed the slave. So what is the meaning of this passage for us sitting here today? I'll summarize that meaning with two words and then a concept that is very relevant to the present circumstances in which we live. The first word is humility. I'm not talking about humility that sometimes means low self-esteem that causes people to become doormats and allow other people to walk all over them. The centurion was certainly 
no doormat. But he recognized the power of God in Jesus and was humble enough to ask Jesus for help. This was a man not used to asking anybody for anything. If he wanted something, all he needed to do was issue an order, and it would be brought to him. If he had not been a humble man, he might have ordered Jesus Christ to be brought to him. But he was a humble man. He was a caring man. And he was a man who respected the beliefs of others. The centurion can serve as a model for all of us. No matter how powerful we actually are or how powerful we think we are, we should never be so proud to not ask God for help in the living of our lives. We should know that there is always a limit to our own power. Beyond it, we either ask for God's help or we achieve very little. The second word is faith. Now, the centurion, as far as we know, was not a Jew or raised as a Jew. He was a Gentile and was not educated or trained in the Jewish religion, and more specifically about the nature of God. However, this Roman Gentile believed in God through Jesus Christ. He had such a faith in God, he firmly believed that Jesus could heal his slave by saying a word, nothing else. In God, the centurion had a positive faith. He had a doubt-free faith. He had a hope-filled faith. This man, with great authority, submitted to the authority of Jesus solely based on faith. But perhaps the greatest indication of the depth and the strength of the faith of the centurion was that depth and strength of faith truly amazed none other than Jesus. The question becomes for each of us. If Jesus Christ walked into this sanctuary right now, would he be amazed by our faith? Would he see the depth and the strength of a faith that was like that of the centurion? If not, then why not? What is holding us back by putting all of our trust and our hope into God? I suggest that we should study and internalize the story of the centurion and hopefully come to a faith in God like that of the centurion. The final importance of this scriptural passage is its meaning for the country in which we live today. I believe that in America, civility and meaningful communication have been replaced by very strong emotions that people have on just about any issue you want to bring up that totally stops any meaningful communication. The same could be said about the two different views of the world of the world held by the Jesus and the centurion. Well, how did they overcome their differences and work together so that someone could live instead of die of an illness? The answer is that they found something called common ground. Common ground. Something that, despite all their differences, they actually shared. That something was God. 
And the centurion came to know that God through Jesus. I believe that the concept of common ground could be used to help cure America today. As many of you know, I am a mediator. I mediate disputes between individuals, corporations, governmental agencies, and divisions that have occurred in church. Over the years, I have come to believe, and what I teach others about mediation is that the key principle in resolving any dispute is to find common ground between the parties. And there is always common ground. I don't care how hostile the parties are. I don't care how long the dispute has been going on. I don't, I don't care how strong each party's belief is that they are absolutely right and the other parties are absolutely wrong. Despite all of that, there is always something that they share, that they all do or can believe in. I always say that if you don't find common ground in a dispute, you either haven't looked hard enough for it, or when you saw it, you didn't recognize it. Every time, once the parties find their common ground, then the relationship between them begins to be cured, and that relationship is reformed between the parties. The common ground that we, sitting here today, can start to help cure America is the same that existed between Jesus and the centurion that was the basis of curing the slave. There was a very recent poll done by the famous Pew Research Center, and by, by recent, I mean last few months, that resulted in a finding that 80% of Americans believe in God. 80% of Americans believe in God. Now, the nature of that God and the nature of their belief varies significantly. But just having that belief is the important thing. Guess what? That is the common ground. Belief in God. I believe that each one of us sitting here today are called to use that common ground to begin to cure the disputes and disagreements in our own lives and then move beyond to cure the much larger dissensions and disputes that exist in this country. Faith in God can be the basis of honest and meaningful conversations that lead to mutual understanding. Once that occurs, then the resolution of issues will follow. I have seen it happen over and over and over again. And the cure of broken relationships will, in fact, begin. Will it work every time? No. No. Will it work most of the time? Based on my experience, the answer is yes. And we have a model to make it work. The relationship of faith between God, Jesus, and the centurion. It worked. I hope we now can see that we can be an agent of change that helps to bring peace and heals wounds in our own lives and then help to do so in our nation. We can be a part of what Isaiah in our first scriptural passage said so very long ago. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares 
and their spears into pruning forks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they war anymore. Not only is this passage true about nations and between nations, but it is also true about wars within nations. So let us use that common ground to begin to heal ourselves, our personal relationships, and our country. And let it be so, and let it be soon. Amen.